Greetings and welcome to the special recording uh, taken from our Elevate network, where we host weekly events, unpacking the issues that are currently uh, facing humanity, exploring our own role in change and looking at how uh, we can make changes to the systems and structures of the world in order to create a brighter future. This week inside the Elevate Network, we were joined by Alexander Beiner, who is the co-founder of Rebel Wisdom. Uh, Rebel Wisdom, like Elevate, have been um, really operating in the sense-making space, trying to understand and take a critical look at the uh, issues surrounding the pandemic, and more recently, Russia and Ukraine, amongst a whole host of other issues. Alexander uh, is a fascinating human being. He runs the Sensemaking 101 course within uh, Rebel Wisdom. I had the great pleasure of taking that course myself recently, an eight-week program going through a multitude of different practices from what we call the propositional level, which is around our critical thinking, if you will, to look at the, the issues at hand right through to different practices that enable us to uh, get a more balanced sense of what's going on in the world. Now, we brought together this session uh, in... Uh, in a backdrop of loss of trust in mainstream media, uh, but simultaneously, whilst mainstream media trust may have been lost, we've now got this complex alternative media landscape where it's difficult to discern where the credible voices are, which sources can be trusted. So this session was set up on the, on the back of a number of questions. How do we make sense of the world when trust in media has eroded and dissenting voices are censored, deplatformed and smeared? How can we equip ourselves with the mindset skills and practices in order to separate signal from the noise? How do we identify credible sources? How do we draw out what some of the potential influences could be upon a source? How can we avoid leaping to conclusions or drawing conclusions based upon our own biases? or conforming to the views of the group uh, that we may belong to? Uh, how do we begin to recognize the difference between verifiable evidence and unverifiable speculation? And how can we do all of this without necessarily having any background domain expertise uh, in the face of the topics that we're evaluating? So to help us uh, unpack these questions, we've invited Alexander Beiner uh, to give us an introduction uh, to some of the sense-making principles that he and the team at Rebel Wisdom utilize but also to ask, uh, uh, have an open Q&A session with our audience. Now, I'm recording this after the event has happened. We had some technical issues on both sides. Uh, and uh, if you're watching the video, you'll see that uh, for, for the majority of the session, Alexander had to uh, go audio only. Uh, so if you're listening to the audio, you won't know anything different. <laughs> but if you're watching the video, uh, you'll see um, that we had technical issues. Uh, but it doesn't inter interfere with the quality of the conversation. This is one of probably one of my favorite uh, sessions that we've done so far in terms of quality of engagement and uh, uh, an inquiry around these key issues around sense making. So without further ado, uh, I introduce you to Alexander Beiner for this fascinating sense making 101 session with the Elevate Network. If you're not yet a member of the Elevate Network, I encourage you to come and join us over at weareelevate.org. Again, we are looking at subjects like sense making, making sense of the world looking at current issues, but more importantly, looking at how we can transform ourselves as agents of change, uh, leaders of the future, and how uh, we can uh, address some of societal's most pressing issues. So you're very welcome and look forward to seeing you inside the Elevate Network. Over now to Alexander Beiner for this insightful session. 
Alexander, welcome uh, to the session. Delighted you could join us this evening. I know you've had some technical challenges and uh, you found a way to be with us. Um, I have, yeah. So I want to hand over yeah, to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'd love to hand over you really to get your interpretation of the, the kind of sense, yeah, perhaps a, a wider definition of sense making and where you see the sense making crisis that I've started to outline in the introduction. You know, what are some of the challenges that you witness? You know, the Rebel Wisdom have put out some fascinating um, videos on the sense-making crisis, and I know you guys have been tackling this for some time. So I'd be really interested, firstly, in a in a definition, if you will, of the sense of what sense-making really is, and then what are some of the challenges to us having a, a, a deeper ability to sense-make? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, apologies, everyone, for my strange setting at uh, the co-working space I normally work at had a tech error and I was on the phone with their wonderful customer service team in like three parts of the world including weirdly Japan um, and they couldn't let they couldn't let me in so I'm in London but uh, what I might do is is um, say hi with the video on for a bit and then I might um, just kind of stroll and, and talk so I just wanted to, to kind of say a hello in person and then um, if you don't mind I'll just go into audio um, as I start answering that question because I think it'll be um, easier for my end and hopefully i find somewhere to say i seem to be in the only part of london that has nowhere to go it's sort of mayfair kind of area so um it's too fancy to have anywhere to sit down uh so i'm going to just uh, put my video off for a moment and start answering um dan's question so i think when we're talking about sense making so firstly why use the word that no one has necessarily heard of uh, instead of saying something like comprehension or, or understanding, for example. Um, and I, I'm personally not the biggest fan of the word sense-making because it, it sounds a bit um, obtuse, but it is actually the most useful word we've, we've kind of come across. Um, and why it's different to just sort of understanding what's going on or trying to understand is that sense-making is a, a kind of fluid, constant process of receiving information interpreting it, acting, and then reevaluating your, your actions. And based on what new information comes from that action, and then you're in this constant kind of, um, let's say, flow in the world. And because of the incredible complexity of um, not just the information landscape, but also the, the complexity of the world in general, and especially a, a multipolar world that we're in now, it's uh, increasingly important to have that kind of flexibility. So that's, that's kind of what sense-making is in a nutshell. Um, and then I wanted to give a little bit more context as well, because Dan mentioned something in the intro there, which I think is very important, which is often when we're trying to figure out what's going on, we, we try and do that from the level of facts. And that's what um, John Verveke, who's a cognitive scientist, University of Toronto and one of the faculty on Sense Making 101, he calls that propositional knowing, knowing that. And science, for example, is a method for um, understanding propositions and knowing that um, the boiling point of water is 100 degrees, for example. But propositional knowing can't tell you what it's like, for example, to be you or what it's like to be standing in a, in a forest. Uh, so there's different types of knowing that are quite important and equally important. And part of the reason for that is that, and this is, uh, I think, maybe one of Verveke's 
most important contributions is the same cognitive machinery that makes us intelligent also makes us prone to self-deception. And what that means is that, so we, his argument is that as human beings, what makes us intelligent is our ability to select what's relevant from lots and lots of different things that are salient, so calling for your attention. And that's something that it's very difficult or we haven't yet figured out how to get artificial intelligence to do. So as, as a human being, you're able to look at lots of different information or lots of different stimulus. And from the huge amount of information you're receiving, you're able to zoom in on what's relevant to your goals. Um, and that's gonna be obviously different for every person. But it also means that you can zoom on, zoom into a rabbit hole that takes you uh, into a kind of perpetually narrower frame of reference, like a kind of ideology, for example, an ideological capture, I think is a really good example of that, where everything starts to be explained by either an overarching ism, an overarching ideology, or an overarching um, uh, sort of grand conspiracy narrative, or an overarching trust in authority, or an over, it doesn't really matter what it is. So because of that, because we're so prone to self-deception as human beings, and that there's, there's really no way to escape that, um, what's very important is to develop a set of practices that help us to break that pattern and develop a cognitive flexibility so that, and Viveki uses the example of uh, you wearing a pair of glasses. If you, you, you know, we're, we're always seeing through a frame. We're always looking at reality through a frame. And so practices like mindfulness um, and, and psychedelic practices as well, which is an area of uh, a kind of study of mine, they help us to take a step back and look at and, and change our frames, the frame which we're looking at which we're looking through reality. And then we have to have practices that help us apply those frames that might be, for example, dialoguing with one another to kind of to test out the frames and say, hey, I actually have a new way of seeing this particular issue or this particular new story or whatever it might be. And so this process of zooming out and zooming in, that's not something we can, we can think our way to. It's, it's something that we have to use embodied practices like mindfulness or dialogue practices or, or breath work or um, any number of combination of different techniques, which many often have come from wisdom traditions around the world, but we're kind of, you know, at Rebel Wisdom, we've been experimenting with lots of different ones and combinations for a number of years. I think that's probably the key. And that's one of the main, most important things that I've learned about sense making is that we can stay on the propositional level, you know, and, and create really complex analyses and models all we want, but we only ever really get a small slice of a ever-changing picture that isn't really actionable once we've gotten it by the time we've figured something out. So we need all these different types of seeing and perceiving to actually, we never figure out what's going on 100%, um, but we have a much better chance of coming to some kind of shared baseline, what I call minimum viable reality, that we can um, have conversations and make decisions from. And right now, uh, partly due to social media, partly due, I think, to intense cultural polarization um, and postmodernity in general, we don't really have that shared sense of even whether truth itself is, is we, we can't even agree on whether truth itself is, is a fixed value. 
or whether it's 100% relative or partly relative. So that's part of the sense-making crisis. Um, the next part of it is, is a little bit more practical, which is that we have this information landscape, which used to be... Um, used to be based on kind of broadcasting information. So, you know, you know, sitting around a radio in the 1950s, turn on the radio and there's maybe one or two stations and you kind of have a, a message broadcast to you. Now, in the same way, we have a multipolar world geopolitically. We have a very multipolar world in the information landscape. We have those traditional broadcast form media uh, companies like, let's say, CNN. And then we have a whole ever-changing and very sort of young uh, alternative media landscape. And where uh, and they both have their drawbacks. Um, they're not... Uh, so my, my colleague, David Fuller, um, the other founder of Rebelwisms, called the Uncanny Valley. We're sort of stuck between knowing that the mainstream is missing out a lot, but also aware that the um, this young alternative media landscape has is, is got its many of its own problems, including um, it's very easy to fall into audience capture. Um, you're, you're at the whim of algorithms that you didn't create. And so there's, a, there's this whole web of incentive structures that lead to bad truth seeking in traditional media. There's also a whole web of incentive structures that lead to bad truth seeking in alternative media. Um, and we, but this is really important, or this is part of the, the crisis, because we have to outsource our sense-making somewhere at some times, very often, actually, um, because we, partly because we live in such a, a hyper-specialized world where we each have our own areas of expertise, and that's, you know, maybe not the only way, but certainly the way that our civilization has managed to be so big uh, is that we have many many people and institutions specialize in different areas and so the idea of one individual somehow managing to simultaneously be uh, an expert on climate change and pandemics and geopolitics and culture and sexuality and all these different things is it's impossible so we have to find some kind of way of coordinating with one another in order to um find truth together. And there's really, there's exciting versions of that happening on, uh, in the new media landscape, like for example, Drastic, the, the kind of the decentralized group of researchers who helped make the lab leak hypothesis go from um, fringe conspiracy theory, not allowed to talk about this, to, oh, actually, this is now legitimate slash probably what happened. Um, that was due in large part to, to research from, you know, which you guys might already be aware of, but research from uh, you know, a group of researchers around the world. So that kind of thing, I think, is really promising, but it's also just very young. It's only 20 or so years left, really, since we've had these, especially social media technologies. Um, so, um, yeah, that's kind of a broad, broad outline. This is, I mean, it's obviously, it's a huge topic. Um, final thing I might just say on that is that, so I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment um, which comes out next year. Uh, and it's, it's actually about how psychedelics can help us make sense of the world, but combining these, what we've looked at on Rebel Wisdom with um, altered states and how they can actually help us shift our frames. But 
in the book, I'm referring to uh, the three crises, as I'm calling them. So there's the one I was just talking about, which um, you could refer to as the sense-making crisis. Um, I'm referring to it in that as the trust crisis, because I think really it's a crisis of trust. It's a crisis of trust in information sources. It's a crisis of trust in one another and, and also um, in, in the very process of how we go about finding truth to begin with and what truth is. Uh, and then there's a, a crisis that is also really important, which is the meaning crisis, which is that sense-making and meaning kind of go together. You make sense and then you make meaning uh, as a human being. And so we have a meaning crisis in the West in particular, which is uh, a phrase popularized again by John Verveke, who I mentioned earlier. The meaning crisis is sort of the, the void of purpose at the heart of um, Western consumer culture. We don't really have a clear idea as to who we are, what we're doing, or why. And that, in that void, you know, uh, G.K. Chesterton said, uh, when a man stops believing in God, he'll believe in anything. I think that's a really nice quote to, to explain what happens when you have a cohesive, under, uh, a cohesive model of where you are in the universe uh, and at least some coherence that's at least embedded within society. When you take that away, as we have maybe over the last 150 or more years, um, something has to fill that void. And materialist science and consumerism can't really fill the void. And so we're seeing the, the birth of lots of sort of internet religions, like QAnon is a really good example of that. Um, this is, I have a theory around this called the age of breach, because we're seeing, I think, lots of <clears throat> proto-religions forming online, which are kind of filling the void of, of meaning. Uh, and then they're kind of, they're breaching into the real world. So the the riots, uh, the storming of the Capitol on January 6th is a, an example of that. But so is the GameStop um, phenomena that happened, the um, Wall Street bets um, that happened uh, about a year and a half years ago. We had activists and investors on Reddit kind of taking on Wall Street. Um, and there's lots and lots of other examples, uh, I think, of where we're seeing this happen and, and likely to continue happening. And part of the reason I'm bringing it up is because I think in, unless we look at this kind of deeper psychological and religious level of, of what's going on in culture, we can't really make sense properly because we're missing a huge aspect of what it is to be human. And then the final crisis is the meta crisis. Meta means um, after or going beyond. It's like the big one. Um, and the meta crisis is sort of the combination of all the different existential threats we face and the trust crisis and the meaning crisis. So um, from climate change to geopolitical instability, so these huge problems that we face as an entire species that require imagination, coordination to solve, uh, but those are exactly the things that we lack right now. So that's the, um, yeah, so I'm particularly interested in, in the different ways that we can find that coherence again and um, yeah, work towards new ways of uh, collaborating, particularly around you know, not just information, but also meaning itself. So I'll maybe leave it there um, and I'll hand over to you, Ben. Thanks, Alexander. I think it's really interesting to break down beyond the sense-making crisis into those wider 
aspects. Um, we've been talking about the latter part that you've just shared in terms of the kind of what uh, some describe as kind of the God-shaped hole, uh, looking at the kind of religious component here um, uh, in, in, in surrounding meaning. Do you think this particular component also plays into this kind of what we've seen in terms of a rise in the kind of good versus evil narratives that, that have played out both within the pandemic and uh, now Ukraine and Russia? Is it, do you think that's a, a contributory factor to this kind of dominant kind of narrative that can play out? Yes, I do. I think it does contribute. I think the pandemic and Russia are... Um, perhaps different, uh, have different, uh, there's different things going on there. I think with the, with the pandemic, this sort of feels very much like that, that kind of religious impulse playing out. And um, uh, actually, Verveke calls it like a, it was like a, it, it kind of pushed a lot of people into almost like Old Testament biblical thinking, like cleanliness and hygiene and um, adherence to specific codes. And so I think that's definitely in there, it was also probably the most. It was it was the first shared experience as a planet. I would say that that certainly in my lifetime. Um, and so yeah, I think a lot of sort of strong archetypal forces come out of that. I think with um, yeah with Russia, I don't know. I feel differently about Russia because I um, yeah I think I think you, what's interesting. I think that's a breach event in the sense that Putin. Um, it's heavily motivated by a sort of, um, sort of nationalist, uh, kind of Russian nationalist fantasy that's been brewing with thinkers like Dugan and, and others, um, not online in this case, but sort of in the, in the thought space of Russia. Um, and that, that kind of proto-religious fantasy then erupted into a, you know, a, into the physical world. And, and just like with the January 6th riots, it never goes the way people are are expecting it's going to go because when fantasy meets reality, um, yeah, things don't turn out as planned. Um, yeah. So, but yes, I, I do think the, the religious, I, I actually think the religious impulse is everywhere. I think it's, it kind of runs through all societies and it, I think it was definitely heightened during the pandemic in lots of different ways, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll leave it there. Thank you, Alex. Uh, we, we're going to open up the, the, the room to questions. So, so I've just posted in the chat. You can either type your questions into the chat and I'll uh, happily field them to Alexander, or um, <clears throat> you can click on the reactions button and raise your digital hand to, to do so. Or if there's complete silence, <laughs> feel free to unmute, unmute and fill the void. Um, but as always, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a ton of questions that I'd like to ask, but this is your, your time, your space. Uh, so uh, uh, I know that Alexander would be very welcome to, to address questions around sense making itself, perhaps some of the, 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 the broader narratives that we've witnessed in the last couple of years. I know that obviously through the work the Rebel Wisdom have been doing, they've been covering the pandemic, Russia, you know, so the specific questions around what's going on in the world. I'm sure Alexander would be keen to share his, uh, his take or, or, or some views that have come up. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I'll, I'll continue to ask questions. So uh, please do hit the uh, raise your uh, hand button to, to join the, uh, the question queue and post your questions in the chat. Um, I'll, I'll ask another question, Alexander, as people get the, the questions together. Um, really from a kind of practical perspective uh, uh, and a tool 
for and it, managing our own. The question I'm looking to ask is, with with our own inner biases, you know, whether it's confirmation bias to looking for sources that that, that validate our existing assumptions or beliefs or whether it's this idea of apophenia where we start to draw conclusions and connections to things that perhaps don't connect or relate what is your experience through the sense making faculty that you have in terms of some of the tools that help us to mitigate against some of those internal biases or cognitive biases that we that we have and some of the the kind of leaps in faith, uh, leaps in association that we can perhaps join when we can connect the dots between things that perhaps don't necessarily connect. Could you speak into some of those challenges and, and some of the practices that are available to mitigate against those things? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a really interesting question. Um, the, the first thing that, that springs to mind is... Um, it, it, <laughs> It's, it's kind of a little bit of a pithy statement, but like stop believing things in general, like so, like the, the, the dynamic of belief rather than a kind of um, a temporary belief or a kind of provisional, ah, this might be the case right now, but as the context changes, it might too ch- it might change as well. And uh, not, not, not having a firm, too firm a grip on our own conception is absolutely essential i think for all of it and so that there's there's a couple of different um practices that are really helpful for that uh one of them is mindfulness um and specifically one of the aspects of mindfulness called decentering. so as my background as i uh i've been a long-term meditator and um set up a meditation school in london around for a few years and um so i've i've always been um, you know, meditation has always been very important to me, but I've also always considered it quite um, important for navigating the world effectively um, rather than just spiritual or personal growth. But mindfulness, so, so this aspect of mindfulness called decentering is taking a step back from the content of your experience and observing it. So with that comes a kind of space between ideas and concepts, and I apologize for the, the traffic, um, yeah, ideas and concepts, you can watch and observe very clearly without grasping them or needing them to be true. That's what I mean about belief. I think very often our, where we go wrong is where we need something to be true because it confirms something about our self-image or it confirms something about the way we think the world should be. Um, acceptance is also, sort of radical acceptance is also a really key aspect of mindfulness. Um, accepting things as they are without without trying to change them and there's a kind of uh, it's a really core quality I think uh, because without that we're sort of fighting against reality um, and I think we see that in the extreme we see it with like let's say flat earthers um, it's a really you know extreme example of it and uh, yeah I mean this is other there are a lot of other cognitive tools and, and also just being aware of the various different cognitive uh, biases that we have and uh, like the backfire effect is one for example I'm uh, thinking about flat earthers where if you if so the backfire effect is that when you present someone with information that is contrary to a deeply held belief it has to be deeply held rather than um, something they don't care about that much like uh, a fact about olive oil for example but if you um, present someone with contrary information to a really deeply held belief very often that belief deepens 
rather than loosening. And there's lots of different research and back and forth about the backfire effect, but it, it does seem to definitely be the case. And there are arguments that, you, you know, with the, enough time, uh, you can actually get around that effect. But I think I've certainly experienced it. Like if you challenge a deeply held belief someone has, they, they double down on it. So, uh, and that's true of all of us, right? So it's, again, mindfulness becomes really important because it's like, if I notice myself doubling down on something and becoming very defensive about an idea, that's something to notice and, and inquire into and think, okay, interesting. And, and curiosity is a really important quality and actually harnessing and practicing being curious is really essential. Um, partly because it, it shifts your nervous system into a different mode. Um, that's a, a theory from polyvagal theory, which is this idea that we can be in a kind of curious, open, creative mode where we feel safe and we're kind of exploring our environment. Or we hear a, a tiger in the bushes and we, sh we go into a different mode, fight or flight, hypervigilant. And that fight or flight mode is not really great for, for nuanced sense making. So the more scared we are, the more narrowly focused our thinking becomes. Um, so we don't really have the capacity to be playing with ideas and entertaining different possibilities. It's just, it's too dangerous. So curiosity is a really useful way to um, hack that in, in a sense and actively be curious when we notice we're feeling shut down or our thinking is narrowing, becoming curious about that, thinking, oh, how interesting. Um, how interesting that this person said that and I'm feeling this right now. Um, I wonder why. And again, if you notice that there's, a, there's an act of decentering in that, of taking a step back and, and observing myself from the outside as best I can. Um, for example, you know, if you're having an argument with someone at the moment or you're in a dispute, write down what's going on in the dispute, but refer to everyone in the third person. So you refer to yourself in the third person and you explain where your position is. You refer to them in the third person, explain their position. Maybe there's a third person in the third person. That's a really effective way of that. That really hits it home. You go, oh, wow, it really takes the sting out of it. It's a lot less personalized. So not taking things personally and, and getting better at that is also good, uh, a good tool. And then finally, the, the key thing with, with all of this is that we can't really do this alone. We're always going to be narrowly focused in some way. And, and like I was saying at the beginning, um, intelligence is bias. It, intelligence is the ability to hone in on what's important and narrow our focus. Otherwise, we would just be lost in a sea of information all the time. So it's impossible not to only have a piece of the, the picture personally. So that means we have to get good at learning from one another, sharing information, coordinating having conversations about difficult topics that don't break down into that kind of emotional hijack, but can, can keep going and be repaired and, and be generative rather than um, uh, falling into entrenched positions. So that's, that's equally important to anything we do on the individual level is figuring out how to do that. Thanks, Alexander. We've got a couple of questions coming in for the room, but it's like to kind of flip that on its head for your kind of final point. You know, the, the original question was around biases, our own inner biases, but that shared sense-making experience you've just referred to obviously comes with some risks as well. When it when you look at, say, the potential for groupthink or you, uh, you know, operating in silos where there's kind of a dom already a dominant perspective or ideology, how do you therefore tackle those group dynamics, uh, group identity, groupthink, and the risks that come with that in terms of sense-making? 
Oof, that's hard. <laughs> I mean, how you tackle it depends on each each group, I suppose. Um, but I, I think you really need practices that take people out of themselves and then have a way to zoom back in in terms of the group in such a way that um, the group itself can, can open up into new ways of thinking. But there's also a lot of other dynamics that come up with groups. Um, projections, transference. Um, Rene Girard talks about the, the scapegoat mechanism, which seems to play out in almost every group I've ever witnessed if they're together long enough. So we just have to be aware of all these different dynamics. So there's a lot of psychoeducation involved in getting good at figuring that out. And, and also part of the answer is I don't know because everyone's trying to figure out how do we get to coherence more effectively in, in groups? It becomes exponentially more difficult. <laughs> it seems like the more people you add to a, um, and then if you have a whole society or half a society, um, it's even more difficult. So uh, yeah, but hopefully we can all figure out better ways to do it. Could you just explain that scapegoating effect that you mentioned? Yeah, so um, Rene Girard, uh, French, I believe he was, uh, he was a Swiss uh, philosopher. He talked about the, um, he actually he, he talked about it in, in Christianity um, uh, and just in general, that there's this dynamic of sort of victim uh, perpetrator and, and uh, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm only gonna make a hash of it because it's been a while since I've looked at it. But um, basically in, in very simple terms, groups tend to, to project all of their unresolved feelings, frustrations, et cetera, onto a particular person. It used to be an actual goat. So the, the sins of the tribe would be projected into the goat and the goat would be slaughtered. And that would sort of cleanse the tribe. And then, and that was a follow on arguably from when we did it to, to humans, to sacrifice a human who'd kind of taken all, all the sins. Um, and Girard, I think one of the most interesting things about his work is that he argues that Christianity was so innovative because it was the first time someone flipped the scapegoat mechanism on its head and by willingly being sacrificed, um, kind of, that, that's why the kind of taking on the sins of the world is so powerful or one of the reasons is that this story of someone willingly breaking the scapegoat cycle so that it didn't have to go on anymore is one of the, the kind of key founding myths underlying Christianity and, and a very powerful yeah, very powerful story. Thank, thank you for that. Liz, uh, I can see you've raised your hand. I'd like to invite you to unmute and share your question. Um, it wasn't so much a question as a, as a comment, really. Um, so thank you, Alexander. I, I think one of the core problems that we're facing is, um, is we've lost the art of conversation. Um, I, I, I think we there's this term oh I want to be around like-minded people well actually I don't I want to be around open-minded people who have a different point of view to me and can spark off an interesting conversation I mean I'm clearly no spring chicken I've been around a bit and I see a degradation in language in um, uh, people's ability to express themselves and debate I mean I I feel very very well placed to comment on everything that's gone on in the last couple of years because I did a degree in psychology. I'm an ex-nurse, so I've watched people climb the greasy pole of success in the NHS. I used to work for the BBC. I've watched people climb the greasy pole of success in the BBC. And I used to work at the House of Commons. Same again. 
And I can remember being appalled when I first went to the House of Commons. Um, it was back in 1982, very exciting time. It was when the Falklands War was going on. And I went into the chamber, which, and the debating, you see, this is the point, debate? I walked in there and I thought, God, they're behaving like a bunch of animals chucking their egos around. And I think that's the point. If, if um, when, when that started to be televised, the House of Commons stuff, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe people thought that's, that was debating. If, you know, it's, we've lost the art of discourse and any new information that comes into our closed systems, we find perturbing, but we are, I don't know, hell bent on um, having to be right because that's the only way we feel secure rather than, uh, Alexandra, totally get it you know curiosity we we seem to have lost you know the older I get the more curious I get the more I realize how little I know and I feel yeah I uh, just and I'll stop in a minute just go back to the sense making bizarrely um I refuse to be um uh you know uh affected by the fear the fear pandemic so I kind of checked away from mainstream media. And then it wasn't until about six months ago, I thought this is really not, you know, so I did a very, very, very deep dive um, to, to multiple sources. Um, I've only just recently discovered you, Dan. I think what you're doing is great. So thank you. Thank you. I'm, um, I'm sending your links to people who aren't ready to do an even deeper dive because I think you're, you're, you're Great, you're very accessible. Um, I think that's the thing. I think we've got to get our news information from as many sources and go with our guts as well, you know, get out of our heads and get back into um, our guts and trusting our, our instincts. Um, bizarre, I found myself saying to somebody the other day, I've spent my whole life, I was born into the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic faith and um, I call myself a recovering Catholic now, and I, I feel the world never made sense to me, but actually now I've done the deep dive and looked at the dark stuff, it totally makes sense. And bizarrely, I've never felt more at peace in my entire life because now I've looked at the darkness, it all makes sense. And I feel like I'm in the little eye of a storm, um, and maybe that's the spiritual journey that this is providing, giving us an opportunity for, that actually it gives us a chance to look at our own dark side as well as what's going on out there in the world. Anyway, I think I probably said enough, but it was just wanting to spark a bit more conversation. Thank you, Liz. Uh, Alex, I'd love, love to hear your uh, response to that. There's a few things I picked up that would be interesting to comment to your own in addition, your in intuition, instinct shadow work, group relating. I think there's some really interesting strands there to unpack. Really interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, thank you, Liz, for that. Um, and I mean, there's lots There's lots in there. I, I wanted to um, speak on one, one of them is the, <clears throat> I completely agree. We sort of lost the, the art of conversation. We actually just ran a course which ended yesterday called the, the Art of Difficult Conversations. Mm. Um, so this is something that I think we've, we've been very, um, yeah keen on and, and just noticing um and i am currently reading a book by um sherry turkle who is an mit professor 
and she's been <clears throat> she's also she's a clinical psychologist and she's been doing research on this exact phenomena for and as it relates to the internet and robotics uh for like 30 years um and it's really yeah it's really interesting in, in terms of you know she's pointing out that it's social media and the internet, the internet in general, but social media has made it considerably worse and might be the actual cause of it. In fact, this, this breakdown mm. in our ability to actually have real conversations um, in part because we like, you know, just the, the process of actually communicating online is less scary for most people mm. because it's less intimate. And because, and so you, what you trade off intimacy for ease but then you also miss the actual the depth. You don't ever get to the real depth of um, these these deeper layers of what's going on in the conversation. Um, I was telling someone um, interviewing for my book, uh, a guy called Rick Strassman, who's a, um, a researcher, DMT researcher, and he <laughs> when I told him that he said he'd been this was in 2010. He said he'd been in um, New York delivering a talk, and in the lecture theater next to him. There was a talk on about how to have conversations with real people, so not mm. online. And that was like, and there was, they weren't being ironic. It was actually people going, students going to actually figure out, well, how, how do you actually have these actual conversations? So it's a, it's a serious issue. And I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's in a way getting worse, but I think it's also creating a, um, a kind of natural pushback and getting people interested in, for example, like Dana mentioned, um, shadow work and, and, and shadow was so the shadow I'll just talk about briefly is um, the shadow is a concept from Jungian psychology and is effectively any aspect of ourselves that we've cut off and rejected because we were told as a child you know for example you're not allowed to be angry so anytime we had a natural anger response it was kind of separated from who we are yeah. and pushed into the basement of our consciousness so that what then happens is that it, because it has to go somewhere, it gets projected out onto other people. So other people seem angry. Um, and we see them as angry when, you know, they might be angry sometimes, but actually it's, it's us uh, projected all over them. And that's a really essential dynamic. I think shadow work is one of the most important processes we can do. Um, and that's really essential dynamic in any group conversation, any conversation at all is to be as aware as possible of our own shadows. Uh, the, the me I can't see, as my friend uh, Doshin Roshi, um, the, the Zen master and a shadow expert, he calls it the me I can't see. Um, I think it's absolutely essential because then we have a sense of, yeah, what's the what's the darkness? What's hidden? What's in the darkness in the particular group or particular conversation? What's the underbelly? And and the, use, getting skillful at surfacing it and owning it. And there's a tremendous amount of power and creativity in that darkness as well. Um, once we kind of uh, own it back into ourselves, either individually or in a group. So um, yeah, it's a big topic, shadow work, but um, definitely worth exploring if, if anyone is interested in that. Well, thank you, Liz, for your comments and, and Alexander, your reflections there. A couple more questions coming up in the audience here. Francis, do you want to, to share your uh, question or observation? Yes, thanks. <clears throat> um, we're talking about cognitive dissonance and looking through frames and going off looking for uh, information that's going to support the view that you're approaching it with. But these are quite kind of vague terms. And I wondered if you could give us a specific, uh, something more specific that explains what you mean by a frame. In other words, 
what is somebody thinking that you would describe as a frame that leads them to finding information that you are referring to as bad information? So, because I, it's very subjective, isn't it? That sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't necessarily putting a, a connection between frames and bad or good information in general, just to clarify that. But so to, to explain it um, a bit more clearly, so I mean, we're always seeing the world through a particular frame of reference, no matter who we are. And so that frame, that frame is effectively a way we, we create boundaries around what we are going to focus on and what we're going to see and not see. And our frames are, you know, we have lots of different frames are highly complex. Um, there's, a, there's a whole philosophy called relational frame theory, which is forms the basis of um, some cognitive behavior therapies. And it, effectively it's, it's impossible. So basically that, that philosophy or kind of model argues that we have these, you know, when I say dog, you have your own personal associations with dog, which might be hundreds of associations, cute, fluffy, dangerous, whatever. And then those associations connect to other associations as well. So there's this vast kind of network of interconnected concepts in our heads at, at any given moment. And they're not necessarily accurate. Um, and so it's not necessarily about good or bad information, but if we're not aware that we're looking through a particular frame, then, um, you're right, like saying information is bad information is subjective, but I think the more important thing is to recognize that we're constantly seeing all information through a particular frame and, and, and sort of uh, network of different references that we personally have so we can widen our frames through lots of different ways, including researching. You know, researching gives us much more, um, and researching well gives us a lot more connections between the different um, concepts that we're holding, but all of those together and lots and lots of other different things uh, like, you know, our, our temperaments, our, how hungry we are that moment, everything is, is creating a particular frame. And, but new information, novel ways of seeing things more, more in expansive and complex. It's about complexity, really. If we can hold more complexity. It, it requires us to, to allow our frames to be flexible. And so a very closed frame would be like dog equals bad, you know, because you were bitten by a dog and it's always bad. And there's no, there's no way to see a dog in any other way. So that, that hopefully that, that clarifies a little bit what I was talking about. I, yeah, I just think it's um, very difficult to do anything about that. And um, I mean, I, I, I'm somebody who is, um, you know, very critical of, 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 uh, the narrative that we've had for the past two years on on most things. And I'm sure that, um, you know, people who believe it would say that I'm looking through a terrible frame and, and getting all the wrong information. But I say to them, well, you're only going to very few sources that all agree oddly, uh, you know, and, and present the exactly the same picture, which actually should be um, a big flag, in my opinion, for people. And I say, well, go to some of the alternative sources that I've been referencing when I've, you know, posted things on Facebook and use your own brain and start trying to think, you know, what makes sense to you? Use your own instincts. People have lost touch, in my opinion, completely with their instincts. They've accepted things that instinctively we should all have been absolutely horrified by. And they've gone on accepting it over two years. 
but am I the one looking through a frame that is distorted and distorting everything? Or, uh, you know, should they actually be trying to widen what they're looking at? I, I'm sure I go to stuff that is wrong, and I'm sure that I, I respond probably overly, you know, um, strongly sometimes to, to things that are wrong. And, and, and you, you know, everybody should have the right to be wrong. But I'm somebody who will look at um, uh, you know, a number of different uh, alternative sources. Okay, that's my bias. But I'm always asking myself, does this make sense to me? I'm trying to use my instincts. And I'm not sure what, what else I can really do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say um, that's, that's all most of us can do. Um, staying flexible, staying curious. I mean, also, I, I would argue that uh, the question is, it's really important to come into like uh, epistemic humility. So knowing what we don't know on all for everyone, right? So I would say that all of our frames are by their nature, partial, um, smudged in some way, etc. And I, I hear you in that most, you know, it's very difficult to get anyone to acknowledge that, or it's difficult to acknowledge in ourselves, difficult to get other people to acknowledge it. And that's a real, that, that I guess comes back to this process of how we, how we make sense together in groups more effectively or outside of our group as well, which is, uh, as the case may be, it's probably more important. I think I'll just add a couple of comments. Thank you, Francis. Uh, I think, you know, within the, the scope of the pandemic, I think the lens is presented by a mainstream media. I think, you know, we've, we've discussed some of the limitations and drawbacks of the mainstream media, uh, you know, just on a very simplistic level and, 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 and becoming simplistic is part of the problem. So I'm actually creating a problem by doing this, but, uh, if, for example, just to, to, to illustrate, if, if your view of the pandemic, the lens that you look through it is the volume of cases of a virus, and that's the only lens that you look through, and you, you, you fail to look at then the implications of policy responses, the impact upon society, the long-term implications on health, you know, that narrowing of the lens clearly distorts the fact that, that the situation is far more complex. And I've used the term myopia an abundance of times over the last few years because the narrowing of focus fails to enable us to see the complexity of, of the world. And I think that is a, a worrying trend that I've witnessed more broadly within the media. Um, uh, you, and that's why we see these dominant, very overly simplistic narratives that don't, and again, it's happened with Ukraine and Russia, where we, we aren't able to zoom out and look at other factors. Um, so I, I, I resonate with Francis, your comments. And, and thank you, uh, Alexander, for, for expanding upon those. Um, Jane, I can see you've you had your hand raised, so I'd like to give you the opportunity to engage as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, Alexander. This is absolutely fascinating. I really am very grateful uh, to you. Um, it's raising a lot of questions for me. I used to work in training and development in organisations, um, working with team building, uh, for example. And we often used a model, a Jungian uh, personality model um, that looked, uh, were, you could do a questionnaire and give people a questionnaire to do to uh, understand themselves more. And um, I think it, what may have a, um, a connection, the reason I'm mentioning it, it is there's, there's three main dimensions I'm thinking of. First of all, um, where do we get our data from? And Jung said, we're, we're on a dimension somewhere between data through, sen through sen our senses and data through our intuitions. I'm personally heavy on 
getting data through intuitions, in other words, patterns. Um, and then another dimension was how we make decisions based on that. Do we think or do we feel? And the last third one I'm going to mention, there is a fourth, but I'm, I don't think that's relevant, um, is how willing we are to come to a decision really quickly with judging one end, those that come to a decision quickly one end and perceiving the other. Um, so I'm somebody that I'm an intuitor, I'm a feeler, I'm a perceiver, somebody who takes quite, quite a long time to make a decision. And I, I think there's been a huge emphasis in education um, that's kind of worked its way through into the university system that heavily skews um, and emphasizes the opposite to how I am. People who use, who use hard data and not their intuition, people who uh, come to decisions through thought and not through feeling, and people who want to make decisions quickly rather than reflecting on them and standing back from them. I think there's been a huge sort of shift in that that's quite unhealthy. And I would argue that um, um, if we think about the work of Ian McGilchrist, who wrote, who wrote the, probably some of you may well know him, the master in his emissary, which was this right brain, left brain distortion. Um, and how, if we just think with our left brain all the time, we don't have the right brain's capacity to stand way, 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 way back and look at things in perspective. Um, so I wanted to make that contribution to this discussion. And in my view, it's really important that our, our education system, this brings me on to my question to you, Alexander. I think our education system should encourage children to um, using the framework that I've just mentioned to value both, both sides, you know, left and right brain thinking and feeling as well, intuiting as well as sensing. But I'd like to ask you, in what other ways do you think our educational system has contributed to the distortions that we've been talking about tonight? And how does that need to shift? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> good question. I mean, I have to caveat this by saying I wasn't educated. I'm half German and half Irish. And I went to an international school in Germany for my uh, university in Dublin. So I <clears throat> can't really speak to the British educational system too much because um, I, I don't know that much about it. But I do know the general public education, let's say in, in most Western countries, um, they, I mean, I just compare it to, to, to like um, what I'm familiar with, the international baccalaureate system, which is around um, looking at the connections between different subjects rather than just these isolated subjects and, and looking at a more kind of holistic view of how things interrelate uh, was actually part of my education, which was which I'm in retrospect very grateful for. That's something I doesn't strike me is really part of um, most of our education. It's also somewhat of a relic from sort of um, industrialized Victorian society as well so we're you know that's that's also a major thing the, the entire structure of um and there are people who really question all this like um 
Zach Stein is, uh, which is Z-A-K-S-T-I-S-T-E-I-N. Um, he's a really interesting thinker on this. He's, uh, he's got a doctorate in education. He's written quite a few books on it. But, you know, the whole, just the whole dynamic of, oh, uh, making a school like a factory and having people come in, having kids sit down for a particular time. Not everyone learns in that way even. So um, I think there's a lot, of, there's a kind of old fashioned, out of date rigidity to the whole system that I think is, um, yeah, not, not teaching people how to think, but teaching them what they should learn. And I think learning how to think and learning how to research and learning how to um, connect with other people in a particular way and all these skills, um, you know, like meditation, for example, mindfulness, I think should be taught in, in schools, not, not just as this kind of uh, watered down uh, relaxation tool, which is a great tragedy of the way mindfulness has come into the, the West, but, but as something much, much more profound and much, uh, much deeper than that. Um, I'm going to have to uh, jump off very soon, Dan. Um, but uh, so I'll just leave that there. Yes, yeah, I see the time. Uh, we're used to our kind of two-hour epics, but Alexander's only got an hour. I wonder if you could very briefly comment into the piece around intuition versus the kind of thinking mind to, to close on that thought. Yeah, uh, this is... Um, I actually put a film out with um, a former poker pro uh, called Liv Marie. And I asked her about this, intuition and sense-making, because, and she gave an answer which I think is really good, um, and uh, ties in with the neuroscience of, of creativity and, and sort of thought, which is intuition is really good for something that you know a lot about. So if you've been doing a particular task, like driving a car for quite a long time and you have an intuition to brake suddenly, like follow that intuition because all this, your, your unconscious mind has got all this information and then it, it combines things that you're not consciously aware of, fires it into your conscious awareness, then you have to act. There's actually a really good book called Strategic Intuition by William Duggan, um, which I highly recommend in this. He kind of goes into this in a lot of detail. But um, intuition isn't good for things we're not familiar with, like a new subject you're researching, for example. Your intuition uh, isn't, uh, should be taken with a pretty hefty pinch of salt. And she used the example of being on the poker table, like when, when she started out, she would have a very strong intuition of like, raise, 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 I've got this. And she would do it and then uh, it wouldn't go well. And then eventually like all the pro poker players, she became effectively a, a kind of mathematician. It just became all about the strategy, the statistics. And she said only in about 10% of her decision-making was based on an intuition she had about someone's tail or the way they, the way they just flick their cards or, or, or some other intuitive sense. So I think intuition, but I'm also a very intuitive thinker. So I really resonated with that. You know, um, I also do things mainly or lots on intuition, but actually my challenge then is to spend a bit more time being more researchy and considered it a bit. Uh, and, and then vice versa, if someone's very comfortable with models and isn't very intuitive, then it's, it's good to practice what you're, you're not good at. Thank you, Alexander. I know you have to go. Thank you so much for your, your time with us this evening. Apologies again for the technical issues. We've not been able to see your face, but uh, uh, um, thank you so much for your engagement, your, 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 question, your insights, uh, and for responding to our audience tonight. Uh, really appreciate you being here. Um, so uh, we all you say thank you and farewell. Uh, enjoy <laughs> the rest so of the Thank you so much. Uh, thank you again, Alexander. We'll, we'll stay on for a couple thank of you. moments. So thank you, Alexander. Uh,
have, have a wonderful evening and see you soon. Uh, so again, apologies for our technical problems tonight. Um, both, it, both, both Alexander, if you join us late, I had problems as well and had to change rooms and it all looked a bit ropey, but uh, I'm glad uh, we had the opportunity to, to have your questions answered this evening. Um, Alexander's also agreed to do a full podcast interview with us uh, in the near future. So uh, we'll, we'll do some shared preparation for that one inside the Elevate Network. So if you had some burning questions or some ob observations, insights that you'd like to have uh, expanded upon, uh, we can extend that conversation inside the Elevate Network and, and, and add that to the preparation for our uh, conversation. Uh, we're hoping to do that on face-to-face -face so we can limit some of the issues we're Alexander clearly walking through the streets of London on the way to his next appointment. So um, thank you for your patience and understanding on that one. Um, we are trying to get, you know, more glossy in our, slightly more glossy in our presentation, but uh, we also uh, are seeking to be real as much as possible too. So, uh, uh, yeah, and, and let's be real, most of us are sat in our own front rooms or, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, um, it's 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 the nearest thing we can do can get to being sat around the campfire together and having a, a shared discussion um, on the idea of sat, being sat around a campfire and, and having a shared discussion. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Elevate are running a one day uh, experience as part of the campfire convention event happening in the Mendips in the last weekend of July. Uh, we're just about to start curating our program. Uh, on that, uh, it'd be one of our first physical events. Um, we'll be ready to share the details with our community in terms of the background to the event. Uh, we're working in partnership with Pete Lawrence, who's the founder of, um, if you, those of you who've been in the festival scene will know the Big Chill event, uh, which later uh, became part of the festival, uh, a big part of the festival scene. Uh, but he's then developed the Little Chill, a much smaller experience, and now launched campfire conventions for really community-led co-creations uh, like we started to explore here inside the Elevate Network. So it'll be a combination of sense making, talks, um, practical experiences, breath work, yoga, conscious dance, uh, conscious relating, uh, non-violent communication. There's going to be a whole family uh, experience. Um, there's going to be an entire tent for the for, for younger, younger members of the family. So we've got to, we'll have the full details um, coming out very soon. So I just wanted to share that was, was on the topic of being set around the campfire because uh, we will have the opportunity to do so uh, at the end of July uh, for those of you who wish to join us uh, in, in Mendips. Uh, what's the date on that on Felicity? Uh, I've lost track of the dates. It's the last weekend of July, isn't it? We, we're running this. Are we, are we running the Saturday or the Sunday? It's the Sunday. We're the doing whole the event is the 22nd to the 26th. And we're yeah. Yes, we're on the Sunday. So we'll publish the details on that one uh, very shortly. Um, I just want to uh, offer the opportunity for any closing comments before we wrap up. Uh, I do have to go myself as well this evening. I, I know we've had some long two-hour epics. And in fact, um, I, I'll share another upcoming session. Um, last night, I went to a talk. I'm down south at the minute. I'm in Pulborough. I'm going to give um, my dear friend Deborah a, a shout out. Uh, in fact, one of our team members... Uh, our former team members, Lydia, who worked with us at the Height of the Pandemic podcast, introduced me to, to Deborah. Uh, Deborah's got this wonderful place called the Nest Stay down in Full Pulborough. Uh, several people in this area have found out her, 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 her uh, retreat space and her shop in Ripley through the Awakened Pages and through um, the Against Vaccine Passports, uh, the AVP web, web pages. Uh, I've become dear friends with Deborah. I'm at her space. Lizzie and I are here today. Uh, so if you're looking for a lovely place to stay, a nice place to retreat, I'm just going to give a very positive shout out to Deborah's nest stay because uh, she's very kindly 
uh, looked after us on a number of occasions. She's uh, fully uh, on our wavelength when it comes to the topics that we we discuss. So uh, I'll share the details as well. If you're looking for a, a lovely place to stay with, uh, with your family or, or by yourself, it's a, it's a it's a great place to come. Um, Francis, you got your hand up. Is that a legacy hand up? Is that from your previous um, comment, or uh, do you have? A... No, I, I just wanted to ask you what the aims of Elevate are. What is you're actually trying to set up? Is it some form of alternative? society or or what well thank you uh, <laughs> yes well that's a very big question um so we we actually run a we run a monthly all network call uh, uh which is a monthly experience for our whole community um and that was last wednesday's event where we actually i went into detail on that for uh, about 45 minutes to an hour so the replay to that is available but the short answer is uh we are building elevate is really as a change making platform um, we want to examine the interrelationship between our own inner game, uh, ourselves as, as vessels for change, agents of change, uh, but also look at and examine the external changes that we wish to see, whether that's politically, whether it's in the education system, whether it's in localized economies. So we're creating a space not only to, to, to expand the conversation through the work that we're doing on the content on the, on the podcast, but creating a space here within the Elevate Network to, to continue that discussion, a place to share ideas. It's a place to support campaign and act activism work where that's appropriate, as we've done over the last couple of years. But more importantly, it's a place to start thinking differently about the, the changes we wish to see and actually supporting positive uh, action uh, towards uh, systemic and structural change. But, but recognizing that we all have a part to play in that. Uh, which is why you're seeing the blend of content between the kind of inner personal transformation and the outer social and, and societal transformation. So we're kind of looking at the kind of personal awakening and the political awakening, the political social awakening, if you will, um, forming communities, bringing people together. Uh, our goal is uh, to, to burst, to actually challenge some of the things we talked about tonight in the sense-making class, which is we, we recognize the limitations that come well, the, the benefits that come with being within like-minded people, if you will, who see the world in the same way that you do, but it also does come with challenges when it comes to actually how do we break beyond those silos. So we, we want to create a place where it's we can have open, respectful debate, discussion, uh, people who do see the world differently, because we know how uncomfortable it can be if you know, you're a group of people and everyone says the same thing and you're the one person that disagrees, how hard it then becomes to raise your voice if you feel you're going to get you know, attacked for having a different view. So we want to create a space where we can actually have those meaningful dialogues uh, and explore solutions, but not just, you know, explore philosophically the change we wish to see in the world, but actually create tools and, uh, uh, and methods that actually result in change. And again, whether that's activism where appropriate, because there's plenty of pieces of legislation that we need to tackle, you know, it's clear in the UK, the Human Rights Bill is, uh, the Human Rights Act is, 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 is fading away and we, we have work to do to, to, to uphold our human rights, the online safety bill, we've got the police bill, the erosion of dissent, you know, there's plenty of activism, but if we get stuck, if we get stuck in the kind of whack-a-mole attacking the policies, we don't ever then address the underlying issues. So medium-sized answer to your question, a place to, to, to stimulate change and look at how we can actually localize and actually enact those things. Uh, and, you know, there isn't an elevate way. The elevate way is your way. You know, we want to empower people to, to find ways of creating change in their own unique way. Uh, 
you know, there's, there's not a prescription here of, you know, if we all do X, then the world will change. It's recognizing the complexity of the world that we face and, and the variety of solutions that will be necessary. Um, so we want to we want to create a, a place where we can actually co-create, where we can amplify all the good work that's being done outside of Elevate. Uh, but really, yes, our focus is on our lens really is the lens that brought us together is human agency and freedom, if you will. Um, given what we've seen over the last couple of years and preserving human agency uh, and sovereignty and the right to choose, whether that's in a medical context or whether it's in a what you consume online or whether it's you know your access to public goods and society. Uh, that's been the initial frame that's brought us together, if you will, talking in the terms of frame. But, but, but again, we're, we all come from different backgrounds and experiences and there's lots of people who are passionate about other causes outside of um, civil liberties, human rights, and democracy. Uh, and we want to create a space where people can raise those issues as well. So um, long-term, you know, we, we see it elevate as a role, as playing a role as a catalyst in uh, creating change. Um, I hope that's a satisfactory answer. Um, but we're, we're emergent, we're evolving, we're, you know, and actually we've had these facilitated sessions, but our plan is to host sessions with our community to actually explore these things together. You'll see some of the surveys we've done inside the community around, you know, what, is, what are the core issues? What are the types of action you want to be looking at taking? You know, what is the source and the core root, root of the issues? This, this kind of exploration is a shared exploration. We want to go together. Uh, and actually the direction of Elevate itself was, you know, I've got some clear ideas around some of the things that we'd like to pursue. Uh, we really do want to create a kind of community-led uh, experience here where our community help us to shape the direction of, of the work that we do. Hope, hope Great, that. Uh, um, yes, thanks very much for that and uh, good luck with it. Um, uh, quite, a, uh, quite a big task. Yes, well, I personally, I've committed my life to, life to this now. <laughs> um, it, I've had to say goodbye to the work that I was doing for the last decade uh, to embrace this. Um, we're not asking everyone to commit their life to a lifetime of personal and uh, social transformation. But, but I, after what's happened in the last two years, you know, I'm compelled now to go the, the duration. You know, this, I, the, the, the world is heading in an interesting trajectory. It is a big task, but, but a problem shared, uh, you know, the old adage is a, is a problem halved. And hence why we're building a community where, you know, the ideas are in the room. You know, the, the solutions are in our own minds. And, uh, you know, it's you have like, people helping you. Yes, I mean, Felicity, who you'll see on the call with me tonight, and uh, Dan, um, we've got a small team of uh, five of us uh, at the moment. Um, we made the decision to take the leap of faith at the beginning of the year to go pro, if you will. Uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're trying to create a financially sustainable organization that enables us to uh, pay our team. Our team are paid, paid uh, team members. Uh, we're certainly not paying anywhere near market rate at the moment in general. Uh, we're, but we're how, all, how are you generating revenue? Good question. So I like, I like the Q&A. So uh, for those of you who have been supporting the podcast for some time will know that we've had a donation model for the content, uh, which has enabled us to take our initial steps uh, as an organization. Very grateful for those of you who have donated and contributed to what we're doing. Um, and, and on that point, by the way, uh, we mentioned it on last week's call. We want to we enter into some real transparency about you know, the funds that have been raised, how they've been raised, how they've been spent, uh, so that you can get that transparency. In addition to the transparency of the kind of impact metrics, 
the reach of the content, but also the outcomes of the kind of campaigns and activity that we're putting together. So initially through donations has been our first funding model. Um, we've also started, if you, you know, for those of you who have seen at the moment, we've got a, a kind of voluntary membership model within the Elevate network. So when you sign up, you have the opportunity to, to join on a monthly contribution or an annual contribution to join the network. Um, so, you know, we want to create a space that is respectful of people's different financial backgrounds um, uh, and current experiences and, and offer the opportunity for people to contribute in a way financially that, that, that can support our aims uh, if they feel called to do so. But we're also now exploring other ways because uh, in terms of transparency, month on month, since we took that leap of faith in January, uh, we've been in deficit. We've been, we've been losing between one and two thousand pounds a month uh, since January. So we're in deficit at the moment. And we've got to plug that hole in order to keep this going. Um, you know, there's plenty of, you know, during the height of the pandemic, the pandemic podcast, we had a team of up to 30 volunteers at any one time. Um, but that came with so many challenges, you know, in terms of meeting deadlines, getting things done, responsibilities. Um, so we wanted to, to strip back and build a core team that can help to deliver this um, project. Um, so, uh, yes, we're, we're very happy for other people. We will be uh, at this point. We, we can barely pay ourselves. So um, uh, we, we will we will be looking to expand the team. We are looking at different ways of funding, but we're very mindful of you know, if we put out to raise investment, for instance, you know, you get all those kind of problems where people who contribute significant sums of money, which can actually help us do a lot fast, they may want to have, they may have their own interpretation about what we should be doing. Um, so we're very mindful of different sources of funding. But all of these questions you're asking are very important ones, because even coming down to the kind of community led pieces here, having discussions with our community about ways which they would feel comfortable and being part of an organization like this that would be funded in the future is a very interesting discussion because again, creativity, we want to create a space that's, yes, we've got a team leading this, but actually we want to create a space where we're co-creating together. So the idea that our members feel a sense of duty to help support, you know, in a way, because they're part of the change making that we're looking to create, you know, bringing ideas in terms of campaigns and activity, but also bringing ideas and suggestions around how we can become, how we can grow because you're absolutely right the aims are significant and we know that rome wasn't built in a day and uh half the battle at the moment and felicity and i have been in the team have been talking about this there's so many issues that we could go after right now you know just 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 the online safety bill protecting free speech is a massive issue let alone when you it start is. when you when you bring in human rights when you bring in the erosion of democracy when you bring in and when you chunk down then to look at the, the trends you know the role of the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, these big centralized institutions, how you reverse that major centralization of power, you know, mm. we can come up with a fantastic campaign to tackle free speech and actually create some success. But when it comes to actually altering the power dynamics that we're facing, you know, <laughs> we're very realistic that um, you know, it's, it, it could take years, decades. But, but again, to be clear, you know, personally, I've made that commitment to go that course. Um, but but in terms of selection of objectives, even it's hard because the, the, the scope when you actually go to the root cause level, as opposed to the kind of surface level issues is, is, is vast. Um, so, again, we want to open this, you know, and Felicity and I and the team and Dan and, and the others that are with us are looking at different ways that we can open up those discussions with our community and actually explore 
you know, what we should focus on right now and within our kind of capacities, because we don't want to feel like the burden is just on our team to deliver. You know, we've got 4,000 members at the moment. You know, we've reached 15 million people in terms of the content the last couple of years. You know, if we can actually bring communities together and work, work, work on some shared campaigns and initiatives, the reality is we can, we can go much further faster. Um, you know, we kind of feel like we're just like tipping water out of the boat in a minute to keep ourselves moving. You know, that's, that's kind of where we're at. You know, we've got to plug some holes in order to make sure we can keep going. I'm very confident and the team, the team are very confident that we can do that. And if you do want to support and you, you know, you're compelled to, to contribute, you, the, the, there's links to donate inside of the Elevate community. You can support. And again, if you've got other ideas, we'd love to hear, hear from you. And we will be completely open and transparent. So I'm very happy to field the questions like this. And, and I appreciate you answering, uh, asking those questions, Francis. Thank you so much. Well, I, I'd like to actually get together with you at some point and, and hear a bit more about what your plans are, get, get it a bit clearer in my mind. And I may be able to help. So I did actually write to you uh, an email probably a, a year or more ago. We met momentarily at um, one of the marches in uh, in London. Um, but, you know, if, uh, you won't remember me, I shouldn't think. But I did say I was hoping for a response to the email, which I never got. So Very sorry, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, well, I understand. I'm sure you've got millions of damn things. Um, but uh, I, th I think we should we should get together. And I'm also in, in Bristol, which oh, is That makes convenient. things easier. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah apologies. So, I, uh, it's 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 it has been again on a small team it's been very hard keeping up with messages there was a time there was a time during the pandemic where i think i got twenty four thousand messages in a space of a week that uh, uh that's um, that's no lie you know off, off the back no no i mean i, yeah. <laughs> I quite understand so, so, i'm just saying that yes, you yes. know I, I i wanted to try and find out whether there, there could be a role in which i could help something some way of helping and I, I just think we should get together and have a chat Thank you. That'd be great. And, and and if you want speed of response, this is to open. This is open to the audience. I, I do struggle with the, the communication at the minute. I'm trying to get on top of it. And again, in terms of expanding our team, that's going to be a next step to help with that. Uh, the 24,000 messages was after the Mateus Desma interview, where we reached a million people very quickly with just one piece of content. Uh, we had a lot of people reaching out to us, and that's just a million on YouTube. Actually, if you actually add in Facebook, Twitter, Odyssey, uh, and then all the people that copied it and posted it out on their own YouTube channels. Um, we, we reached a large number of people and brought a lot of attention, lovely, positive attention, but some real challenges. Uh, Felicity is, 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 is our kind of network. I call her respectfully our network mama. She is much faster at responding, uh, but we, we speak every day. Uh, so, you know, if there is ever things that you need uh, urgent attention, you are much better going via Felicity to get a response uh, in, a, in a timely fashion, at least. I will endeavor, you know, yesterday I was, catching up on emails but francis uh let's get together in bristol let's get a coffee uh be lovely to see you and um uh, how, how do i contact felicity uh if you look up felicity felicity do you want to take francis's email before we go so we can actually line this up shall i send yeah. it in, in the chat um, yeah yeah that'd be great i'm very, very, very happy for you to do that i also i always keep on top of all of my messages in the network. Yes. I'm yes. different to Dan in that way. I have OCD about my inboxes. <laughs> I have a, <laughs> I, I have a, people a, talk of them and then that never happens. So yeah, I, I, I'm just quite good at prioritizing and making sure that we're getting through the work in some sort of order. Um, so we, we, we're better at getting there now. Um, yes, yes. The pandemic podcast where it was kind of overwhelmed. Um, so I'm always very happy to hear from yes, anybody. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Fire email or uh, in the network, but 
Yes, yes. Now. Yeah, yeah, thank, thank you. Um, I do need to wrap up. I need to, to move. Uh, I, I, Deborah kindly allowed us to use her front room because the internet is, is stronger here, but I need to go back to Lizzie and Zach uh, very shortly. Um, is, is, is there any final comments or questions before we wrap up? Um, this has been, a, this has been a, a really wonderful evening that, that again, we've shared together. Uh, any last questions or comments? Uh, I've, there's about 36 messages in the chat. So if you ask the question in the chat, uh, I'll have to very quickly scan those. Um, I think keep an eye on them, Dan. It's mainly um, cool. sort of queries that I've been going through. And I've saved the chat as well. Great stuff. So this, uh, again, for those of you who joined part of the way through, we've recorded this. Um, I'll probably put the audio out on this as well because of uh, the fact that uh, Alexander was only available in audio. Uh, so thanks again for joining us. Uh, at the moment, we're doing these weekly sessions. Um, uh, we, we have the next All Network monthly call uh, on, the, on the first week of June. Uh, but do keep it click on the events tab inside the elevate network you'll see the other conversations we've got coming up um some of the events like this one you'll only find in the in the specific circle so you'll see we've got three different types of circles we've got the sense making circle for conversations like this we've got the building resilient communities sometimes we host events in those particular circles sometimes we're having the main network my advice is if you're interested in sense making or the community-led experiences to join those circles so you'll get the notifications about the events um, but do keep tabs again if you're on our mailing list we usually send out the, the details of our events in advance uh, and really appreciate you being with us this evening uh, and thank you for engaging and again with Alexander again we only had an hour with him tonight but uh, we are planning the podcast episode so it'd be good to, to take feedback from you on that you know your reflections from tonight's conversation and we can build those into the uh, podcast episode as it as it comes forth so thank you again uh, have a wonderful evening uh, this has been a fascinating evening and thank you all for your contributions and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation inside the elevate network thank you so much for listening to the elevate podcast if you enjoyed this episode please do share and subscribe and you can also check out our video versions of the show on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and Facebook by searching for Dan Aston Gregory. I also invite you to continue the conversation by joining our private community, The Elevate Network. And you can do so by visiting weareelevate.org. Thanks again. I'll see you on the next episode.